Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 196, The Gold-Gilded Grasshopper. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'm talking about what's arguably the most famous and recognizable weather vane in Boston. It's not the sunburst and star on top of Park Street Church, or the swallowtail streamers on the Old State House in Old North Church, or even the grazing bull on Quincy Market. Legend has it that Faneuil Hall's grasshopper weather vane became such a symbol of Boston in the 18th and 19th centuries that it was used as a loyalty test. If any stranger couldn't name the animal on Faneuil Hall, they'd be considered a potential spy. So imagine the city's shock upon waking up one morning in 1974 to discover that the gold-gilded grasshopper weather vane was gone. But before I talk about Faneuil Hall's golden grasshopper, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. My pick for the Boston Book Club this week is Quincy Market, a Boston landmark, by John Quincy Jr., Since Faneuil Hall is at the center of this week's story, I thought it would be fun to feature a broader history of Boston's premier market. Strictly speaking, Faneuil Hall is the singular brick building that opened in 1742 on the former site of Boston's town dock. But when people say they're going to Faneuil Hall, they probably mean that they'll also visit the 19th century granite market building behind Faneuil Hall, and perhaps the former warehouses that flank it on either side. This entire market complex is Quincy Market, named after Boston Mayor Josiah Quincy III. It opened 84 years after the original market site in 1826. This history of Quincy Market was originally published in 2003, and a new, more heavily illustrated edition seems to be in the works. Here's how the publisher describes the original. A bustling commercial center and favorite tourist attraction on Boston's historic waterfront, Quincy Market, the popular name for Faneuil Hall Marketplace, draws throngs of visitors to the magnificent granite buildings and cobblestone concourses that house the area's specialty shops, restaurants, boutiques, pushcarts, and food stalls. Yet few are aware of the history of this legendary public place and its importance in the history of Boston and the nation. In this elegantly written and lavishly illustrated work, John Quincy Jr. tells the absorbing story of the market's unique evolution over the centuries. Beginning with John Winthrop's landing at the Great Cove on the Shawmut Peninsula in 1630, Quincy weaves together a remarkable tapestry of the district's rise, fall, and rebirth. Author John Quincy Jr. is described as an 11th-generation direct descendant of one of America's founding families. I have to imagine that means he's a descendant of one of the many Josiah's Quincy. And for the upcoming event this week, I'm featuring the virtual version of an in-person tour we talked about a few months ago. Back in episode 169, we featured a themed tour at the Gibson House in the Back Bay. The Gibson House is a unique time capsule of Victorian Boston, as it was built in 1860, only very minimally updated after that, and then left completely untouched since its last owner died in 1954. This undiscovered gem of a museum has been getting more attention in recent months because it was used as a set in the recent Little Women movie. The last owner of the house was Charles Gibson Jr., 
who is the subject of the upcoming virtual tour and the in-person tour that was offered back in January and February, when such things were still allowed. Charlie grew up in the Gibson house and then moved back in after his father's death in 1916. He cultivated a persona as the ultimate Boston Brahmin, a throwback to an earlier era. A later profile in the Boston Herald described him as a proper Bostonian whose Victorian elegance puts modern manners to shame, and a small man with a nimble, if sometimes cantankerous, physique. He strolls around with a sort of swagger stick with a silver tip, out of deference to the fact that gold would be too vulgar. He affected an English accent and was always quick to mention his ties to the elites of Boston, London, and Paris. Charlie Gibson maintained his eccentric ways right up to the end. Into the 1950s, he kept up a habit of walking to the Ritz-Carlton Hotel every night, where he'd take his dinner in a full tuxedo and tails, a top hat, and a raccoon coat in cold weather. Charlie, who was a lifelong bachelor and wrote an entire book of love poems that never mentioned a woman, has recently re-emerged as a sort of gay icon for the LGBTQ history of early 20th century Boston. Since their themed tour, Charlie Gibson's Queer Boston, had to be cut short when the pandemic began, the Gibson House will be offering a virtual version at 6 p.m. on August 4th. Here's how they describe it. Explore the Gibson House and the gay subculture of early 20th century Boston through Charlie Gibson's eyes. The story of the museum's founder is one of legacy and family history, of the fading grandeur of Victorian-era Boston, and of Boston's LGBTQ history. The suggested donation for this event is $5 to $15, and advanced registrations required to get the Zoom connection details, additional reading materials, and a recipe for the evening's themed cocktail. I'll include the registration link, plus a link to buy Quincy's Market, and this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 196. Before I start the show, I just want to pause and say thanks to everyone who supports Hub History on Patreon. If you're anything like me, you consume hours of podcasts every week. I listen to my favorite shows while I'm out for my morning run, while I walk the dog, while I mow the grass, do chores around the house. Before the pandemic, I listened on my morning commute as well, but that's less of a concern these days. When I'm listening to podcasts, I learn a lot even though my hands and eyes might be occupied with other tasks. And because podcasts are free to listen to, I can always queue up one more episode. Unfortunately, though, podcasts aren't free to produce. Every month I pay for podcast media hosting, web hosting and security, transcription services, audio processing services, and research databases. The generous listeners who sign up to contribute $2, $5, or even $10 a month to Hub History make all that possible. To everyone who supports the show, thank you. If you'd like to be our next sponsor, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support us link. And now it's time for this week's main topic. On January 5th, 1974, Boston woke up to a front-page story in the Globe announcing 1742 grasshopper weather vanes snatched from a top Faneuil Hall. At about 3 p.m. the day before, which was a Friday, 
Building Superintendent Donald McDonald got a call saying that the American flag had slipped down the flagpole a little bit. I'll include a photo taken about a month after this incident in the show notes so you can see how the flagpole protruded above the cupola atop Faneuil Hall. Though he didn't say so explicitly in the news story, it appears that McDonald would have needed to climb up the cupola and lean out to adjust the flag. When he looked up to see what the flag was stuck on, he realized that the golden grasshopper was gone. The weather vane was made out of copper and in turn gilded with gold. It was four feet long, weighed about 80 pounds, and had been on a staff that stuck eight feet up above Faneuil Hall's cupola, which was itself seven stories above ground level. City officials were immediately skeptical that someone could have gotten themselves up to the top of the cupola, lifted the heavy metal vane four feet up off its spire, and then made it safely to the ground. There was plenty of motive for such a theft, however. While officials called the weather vane priceless, the Globe quoted the owner of a company that had been making weather vanes for over a century as saying that the grasshopper would be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars on the black market. Perhaps surprisingly, there was an established black market for antique New England weather vanes in the 1970s. The same edition of the Globe that initially reported the theft of the grasshopper also outlined a pattern of thefts. Skyrocketing prices for antique weather vanes in recent years have brought out ladder-climbing thieves from Maine to the Carolinas. The most recent such theft in Massachusetts was that of a grasshopper from the top of Swampscott Town Hall on October 21, 1973. Earlier, a grasshopper was swiped from William Pumphrey's roof on Cape Cod a cow from atop Fanny Estery's garage in Springfield, Vermont, and a rooster from an Ellenville, New York office building. This apparent theft in 1974 wasn't the first time Bostonians had looked up and seen that the golden grasshopper was gone. There were two other major events in Boston history that caused the weather vane to disappear. They occurred about six years apart and over 200 years before the 1974 theft. Let's start from the beginning. Unless you've been living under a rock for the last couple of years, you know that there's been a lot of controversy surrounding Faneuil Hall lately. Mostly because of its namesake and primary funder's deep ties to slavery. Peter Faneuil was up to his eyeballs in the Triangle Trade, shipping enslaved Africans to the Caribbean, sugar from the Caribbean to mainland British colonies, and American rum, fish, and produce to Europe to generate the capital to buy more enslaved Africans. He became a wealthy philanthropist, and in 1740 offered to fund a new market building for the town of Boston. Because the money used to construct Faneuil Hall came from slave trading, activists believed the building should be renamed, with many advocating to name it after Boston Massacre victim Crispus Attucks. While I'm on board with tearing down the Statue of Columbus and replacing the embarrassing Emancipation Monument, I'm much more personally ambivalent about renaming Faneuil Hall. Not because I think Peter Faneuil was a great guy, but because I think the intervening 280 years have redeemed Faneuil Hall. It earned a reputation as the cradle of liberty in the years leading up to the Revolutionary War, and during the decades before the Civil War, it became a major center of the abolition movement, hosting speeches by both black and white activists. I'd argue that the name Faneuil Hall is much more closely associated with impassioned speeches by Theodore Parker and Frederick Douglass than it is with a rich merchant who died almost 300 years ago. 
and it's remembered more as a site for organizing the attempts to free accused fugitive slaves by force than it is for how its founder and funder made his fortune. However, with the current controversy around Peter Faneuil and Faneuil Hall, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that the hall was built in the midst of just as much controversy. Just three years before work began on the market hall that would eventually bear Faneuil's name, Bostonians rioted and destroyed the town's previous central market house. The Diary of Thomas Prince, minister of Old South Church, has an entry from March 25, 1737. This morning at two, the town dock market house was torn down. That same day, theology student John Burt wrote in his own diary, Last night, the dock market was torn down by a mob. The next edition of the Boston Newsletter confirmed these reports, printing, On Thursday night, the 24th instant, the middle market house in this town, together with several butcher's shops near the same, were cut, pulled down, and entirely demolished by a number of persons unknown. And several posts of the North Market House were also sawn asunder the same night. The whole idea of an official, centralized marketplace was controversial in Boston. While it made commerce convenient, it also came with regulations. Price gouging could be curtailed, and quality could be enforced to some degree. Market days were restricted to Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, and peddlers were forbidden from roaming the streets hawking their wares on any other day. The town voted to open three regulated markets on March 12, 1734, and two years and two weeks later, the town tore one of them down. The 1737 riot effectively ended Boston's first experiment with regulated markets. But three years later, Peter Faneuil picked that scab by offering to fund a new one. A 1994 study by the Boston Landmarks Trust described the 1740 controversy. Cognizant of the inflammatory environment in which his gift to the town was tendered, Faneuil attached three stipulations to his donation. First, the town must pass a vote for the market. Second, the market must be regulated. And third, the town must never alter the building's use from that of a market. In accordance with these guidelines, on July 2, 1740, a petition was submitted at the town meeting to consider Faneuil's proposal to erect a market at his own expense. On July 14, Faneuil's offer was approved at a town meeting by a narrow margin of just seven votes. The final tally was 367 yeas to 360 nays. Quoting from the 1740 Selectman's Minutes and handwritten notes created by Charles Bilfinch in 1805, the report continues, The new market was to be constructed at Dock Square, on the parcel which had served as the site of the middle market erected in 1734. On September 2, 1740, the Selectman accordingly met marked and staked out a piece of ground for that use, measuring in length from the lower or easterly end, fronting the warehouses in Merchant's Row, 100 feet, and in breadth, 40 feet, which leaves a passageway of 30 feet wide between the town's shops and the market house to be built. During the initial stage of construction, the selectmen appear to have been troubled by continued opposition. In an effort to appease all parties, they induced Faneuil to make an addition of a large hall over the market house for public meetings and for transacting the business of the town. 
While the building that would bear his name was still under construction, Peter Faneuil commissioned a local coppersmith to make a weather vane to go on the cupola, which, like the rest of the building, was designed by Scottish portraitist John Smybert. Faneuil was probably smitten with the coppersmith's latest design, a six-foot-long swallowtail banner made of copper that now adorns the spire atop Old North Church. The artisan who created it was Shem Drown, who was born on the main frontier in 1683, but had been living in Boston since at least 1712. Shem Drown is now considered the earliest maker of weather vanes to be active in America. His first known work portrayed a Native American man with a feathered headdress and flowing hair, wearing a beaded necklace and feathered loincloth. He's holding a bow partially drawn, with the oversized arrow pointing in the direction of the wind. Known colloquially as the Indian Archer, the weather vane was installed in 1716 on the Province House, a 1679 mansion that had just been purchased to serve as the royal governor's mansion. It was used by Massachusetts governors until the turn of the 19th century, when the new State House on Beacon Hill opened in 1798. The building itself was torn down in 1922 to make way for a vaudeville theater. But Shem Drown's weather vane was rescued and now hangs in the main public stairway inside the Mass Historical Society. Along with the Indian Archer and Old North Swallowtail, two Shem Drown weather vanes can still be found in the Boston area. One is a 1721 Golden Rooster on top of the first church in Cambridge, which is not to be confused with the first parish in Cambridge right around the corner. The other is the grasshopper on top of Faneuil Hall. Peter Faneuil probably patterned the grasshopper weather vane after a similar vane on the Royal Exchange in London. That building was the center of commerce in Old England, and he meant for his new market building to become the center of commerce in New England. The grasshopper was made as a hollow copper form, coated with 23-karat gold gilding. Its glowing eyes are glass doorknobs. The weather vane was installed in May 1742, and after Peter Faneuil's death in 1743, the building was formally named in his honor. One of the articles I read noted that the grasshopper weather vane is the only part of the building that remains unmodified from the original structure as it was completed in 1742. Most of the intervening changes are due to an 1806 renovation by Boston's most famous architect, Charles Bullfinch. He added a fourth floor, doubled the width and the height of the building, and moved the cupola from the center of the building to the end. Not all the changes to Faneuil Hall through the ages were as deliberate as Bullfinch's renovation. A diary entry written by John Adams on November 18, 1755 records one of the unexpected events in the history of the grasshopper. The future president had just turned 20, and he was working as a schoolteacher in Braintree. He wrote, We had a severe shock of an earthquake. It continued near four minutes. I was then at my father's in Braintree, and awoke out of my sleep in the midst of it. The house seemed to rock and reel and crack as if it would fall in ruins about us. Seven chimneys were shattered by it within one mile of my father's house. This was the very first entry in a diary that John Adams would keep until his death, over 70 years later. 
1980 article about the Great New England Quake in American Heritage Magazine, Jordan Houston writes imaginatively, Shortly before dawn, the five-inch pine spindle of the Faneuil Hall wind vane snapped, dislodging the 30-pound gilded cricket that spun 10 feet above Boston's marketplace roof. Early risers first heard the baying of dogs, then the roar. Beneath the autumn moon, 1,500 chimneys swiveled and spewed bricks. The gable ends of brick houses that had survived the fire of 1747 collapsed onto cobblestone. As the contents of their homes toppled or migrated, families fled into the streets with shrieks attributed by one observer less to their embarrassment at seeing their neighbors, as it were, naked, than to their fears of confronting Judgment Day at last, and in nightclothes. One of John Adams' professors at Harvard was named John Winthrop, and he published a lecture containing the best scientific thinking about earthquakes of the era just a few weeks after the quake. It's pretty lengthy, so I'll save it in case I do a future episode on earthquakes in Boston. However, given the many handwritten notes in the margins of his copy, future President Adams was very interested in the topic of earthquakes. Professor Winthrop summarized the effects of the earthquake much more succinctly in a 1757 letter, saying, I shall now proceed to mention the principal effects of this earthquake, for which I can find sufficient vouchers. For many strange things have been related, which upon examination appear to be without foundation. Besides the throwing down of glass, pewter, and other movables in the houses, many chimneys were leveled with the roofs of the houses, and many more shattered and thrown down in part. Some were broken off several feet below the top, and by the suddenness and violence of the jerks, canted horizontally an inch or two over, so as to stand very dangerously. Some others were twisted, or turned round in part. The roofs of some houses were quite broken in by the fall of chimneys, and the gable ends of some brick buildings thrown down, and many more cracked. Throughout the whole country, the stone fences were more or less thrown down. The vane upon the public market house in Boston was thrown down. The wooden spindle which supported it, about five inches in diameter, which had stood the most violent gusts of wind, being snapped off. Modern analysis of the historical record, as well as physical evidence like sediments in lakes and ponds, indicates that the 1755 New England earthquake was the strongest to occur in the region's history. Scientists estimate that it was around 6.0 to 6.3 on the Richter scale, and the epicenter was very nearby, only about 25 miles off the shore of Gloucester. While the damage was worst in Boston and Salem, the earthquake and its two strong aftershocks were felt as far away as the Caribbean. Some ministers in the town argued that the sudden proliferation of Benjamin Franklin's lightning rods had caused the terrible tragedy by attracting electricity out of the air and transmitting it into the ground, where it slowly built up until it was violently released. On the other side, Professor Winthrop argued that the intense heat of the Earth's core caused volatile gases to build up and eventually explode. While this argument was being carried out from pulpits, in newspapers, and on street corners, Shem Drown got to work, restoring the golden grasshopper and putting it back on its spire on Faneuil Hall. The exact date that the grasshopper was reinstalled seems to be lost to history, but we do know the date of the next trauma to befall it, just six years later. 
1994 Boston Landmarks Trust Report that I quoted from before says, On the night of January 13, 1761, fire swept through Dock Square, engulfing Faneuil Hall. The Boston Newsletter of January 15th reported, It crossed the street to that stately edifice, Faneuil Hall Market, the whole of which was soon consumed, excepting the brick walls, which are left standing. The loss of Faneuil Hall Market must be great to this town, as it was a noble building, esteemed one of the best pieces of workmanship here, and an ornament to the town. Going back to the report of the Landmark Commission, the brick exterior walls survived, although the building's interior and roof were destroyed. The town voted to reconstruct the building utilizing the brick shell, thus retaining the original dimensions. In order to safeguard against future fires, the building was repaired with a slate roof. Stone trim was favored over wooden decorative elements. This time, instead of relying on the largesse of a wealthy philanthropist, the town of Boston decided to raise the money to rebuild Faneuil Hall itself. A lottery was proposed, and the provincial government gave its assent. John Hancock was one of the administrators of the lottery, and he signed each ticket. Within a year, sufficient funds had been raised, and the hall was rebuilt, using the original brick shell. The hall was rededicated during a town meeting held there in 1763. In one of his most famous orations, James Otis dedicated the hall to the cause of liberty, saying, No other constitution of civil government has yet appeared in the world so admirably adapted to those great purposes as that of Great Britain. Every British subject in America is of common right, by acts of parliament, and by the laws of God and nature, entitled to all the essential privileges of Britons. By particular charters, there are peculiar privileges granted, as in justice they might and ought, in consideration of the arduous undertaking to begin so glorious an empire as British America is rising to. Those jealousies that some weak and wicked minds have endeavored to infuse with regard to the colonies had their birth in the blackness of darkness, and tis great pity they had not remained there forever. The true interests of Great Britain and her plantations are mutual, and what God and his providence has united, let no man dare attempt to pull us under. At this, our first meeting in Faneuil Hall since the fire, I take the liberty to express part of what you must all sensibly feel upon this occasion. We are this day met to exercise one of our invaluable privileges, the choice of officers in this metropolis for the ensuing year. Let us keep the public good only in view. Should any prejudices or animosities exist, this is a proper season for their burial in everlasting oblivion. Let not the poor envy the rich, nor the rich despise the poor. But let us remember we are all of one flesh and one blood, and that the good of the whole is closely and intimately connected with the welfare and prosperity of each individual. When James Otis gave this famous speech, the Golden Grasshopper was once again watching over Faneuil Hall, despite having been badly damaged by the fire and subsequent fall from the roof to the ground. This time, Shem Drown didn't restore the weather vane. Instead, his son Thomas Drown took care of the task. By this time, Thomas was a respected maker of weather vanes himself. You can see an example of his work hanging in the Art of the Americas wing at the MFA. 
It depicts a rooster. Thomas Drown didn't record the exact date the grasshopper was put back into service, much as his father didn't after the earthquake in 1755. However, after taking the weather vane down in 1768 to perform additional repairs, Thomas Drown began a tradition that still continues. When he got ready to put the weather vane back up on top of the cupola at Faneuil Hall, he tucked a note inside, titled, Food for the Grasshopper. The note read, Shem Drown made it, May 25th, 1742. To my brethren and fellow grasshoppers. Fell in the year 1755, November 13th, early in the morning, by a great earthquake by my old master above. Again, like to have met with utter ruin by fire. By hopping timely from my public station, came off the broken bones and much bruised. Cured and fixed, Old Master's Son Thomas Drown, June 28, 1768. And though I will promise to discharge my office, yet I shall vary as the wind. With the inclusion of this note, the hollow body of the grasshopper would be treated as a time capsule for over two centuries to come. On his website, Boston tour guide and Paul Revere descendant Ben Edwards has a handy timeline of the grasshopper's public service. In it, he records dates when maintenance was performed on the grasshopper, and items were added to the time capsule. Such dates popped up in 1805, 1852, 1889, 1898, and 1952. Each time, the notes, newspapers, coins, and other artifacts inside the grasshopper were examined, and some token of the times was added. During the investigation into the theft of the grasshopper, the Boston Globe noted, In July 1952, the grasshopper was removed from the roof and opened. Inside, among other things, were copies of the Boston newspapers of 1889, an envelope containing one Chinese yen, various American silver coins, and a card with the names of various city officials, including Boston Mayor Thomas Hart. Detective Paul R. Carroll of the BPD was put in charge of investigating the 1974 theft. He immediately came to the conclusion that whoever took the grasshopper had help, either from the ground or from the air. The January 6th Globe said, It would be impossible to carry something that size off the roof. I can't see any human being climbing up there, either on the inside or the outside. You'd have to be a monkey to do it. Carol also said that a burglar alarm in the loft would have been tripped by anyone attempting to reach the grasshopper from inside. This leads us to believe that either a helicopter or a crane was used, he said. But it would take a hundred-foot crane to reach the weather vane, and we just haven't located any that tall in the area. If I can just interrupt myself for a moment, a hundred-foot crane is enormous. Something tells me that if a gang of criminals had set up a 100-foot crane right across the street from City Hall, somebody would have noticed. At the very least, inspectional services would have come out and asked for the thieves' building permit. The Globe continues, Carroll said he talked with several area helicopter rental firms yesterday, but added that none are suspects. They usually supply an experienced pilot with every helicopter rental. It would be very risky for them to try something like this. 
Carroll said he also contacted several military reserve units on the theory that the grasshopper could have been taken by a pilot with access to a military aircraft. Pilots in the Army, Navy, and Coast Guard reserve units are allowed to take helicopters to get their mandatory flight time in, he explained. But it is difficult to get the records of the flights they make. I'm interjecting again here to note that a helicopter hovering low over Faneuil Hall would be even more noticeable than a crane. When a helicopter delivered an animatronic brontosaur to the Museum of Science on July 4th, 1984, photos of the dinosaur soaring over the Charles River made front pages around the world. When a Sikorsky sky crane spent a few days in September 2018 delivering HVAC components to the roof of one Devonshire, social media was buzzing. The local news blog Universal Hub covered the event in exhaustive detail. Helicopters used for mosquito spraying, Coast Guard rescues, news videography, medevacs, and military overflights all generate intense public interest now. And I'm going to guess they would have done even more so in 1974. The real story in 1974 turned out to be somewhat more terrestrial. About five days after Boston noticed that the grasshopper was missing, 38-year-old Frank Price of Taunton called up the Plymouth County District Attorney. He said he had outstanding bench warrants and was wanted by the Abington police on drug charges. He offered to turn himself in and said that he could trade information about the whereabouts of the weather vane for leniency. The next day, a friend of Price told the police that she believed the grasshopper had gone missing late Thursday night, the night before its absence was discovered, that ropes had been involved in its disappearance, and that she believed it to be hidden somewhere. It turned out that Frank Price was a steeplejack, someone who would climb steeples, towers, or smokestacks to build or repair them. A detective in Taunton remembered that when Frank Price was low on cash, he used to come into the station and ask if he could paint a chip on the flagpole. We would say, okay and he'd shinny up the pole in just a few seconds. Detectives in Taunton weren't the only ones who remembered Price's dexterity, confidence, and lack of fear of heights. When his name was brought up, officials in Boston's Real Property Department checked the records and discovered that he'd been paid $175 in 1966 to regild the grasshopper. An official who preferred to remain nameless told the Globe, Price is the only one who's ever done any work on the grasshopper. He's the only one we could get for the job. Almost exactly a week after the grasshopper went missing, it came back. On Thursday, January 10th, an attorney acting on behalf of a client he declined to name suggested that Boston police check a certain locker in the Park Square bus station. At about 1 p.m., they did so discovering a three-foot-long spire topped with a golden sphere that had previously topped the grasshopper. Another account says that the attorney asked to meet the detectives in Park Square, and then he showed up with the spire wrapped in plain brown paper. Whichever version is correct, the Plymouth County DA confirmed to the press that the anonymous tipster was none other than Steeplejack Frank Price. At 5 p.m., the BPD got another call. One assumes the delay was to give Price's attorney and the DA a chance to come to a deal. This time, the police were given the exact location the grasshopper was stashed. 
While detectives had been prepared to go to the ends of the earth in search of this artifact, the tip led them to a destination closer to home. The grasshopper was tucked away in a corner of the Faneuil Hall cupola. Apparently, Price had scaled the cupola in the middle of the night, climbed up the spire, and come back down with the 80-pound copper and gold grasshopper. Rather than trying to carry it back to Abington or Taunton without anybody noticing, he simply put it into a corner and covered it with some old flags and bunting that were kept there. On July 23, 1974, specialists from Skyline Engineering took the restored grasshopper to the top of Faneuil Hall. Climbing out on the roof of the cupola, they put the weather vane back onto the spire. This time, they installed a locking mechanism, so the next Frank Price couldn't just walk off with it. To learn more about Boston's Golden Grasshopper, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com 196. I'll have links to photos of Faneuil Hall and the Grasshopper, as well as original news reports about the 1737 destruction of Boston's Central Market, accounts of the 1755 earthquake by John Adams and John Winthrop, and the Landmark Commission report I quoted from. I'll also link to the key 1974 Boston Globe stories chronicling the investigation of the Grasshopper Heist. And of course, I'll have links to information about our upcoming event and Quincy's Market, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you'd like to leave us some feedback, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. We're in all your favorite podcast apps, including Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, and many more. Stream the show every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on bustonfreeradio.com. You can also listen on your favorite smart speaker. If you have an Amazon Echo, just say, Alexa, play the Hub History podcast. Or if you have a Google Home, you can say, Hey Google, play the Hub History podcast. Sure, playing the latest episode of Hub History, our favorite stories from Boston history. Apple Podcasts is the most influential podcast app. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop me a line, and I'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. Listeners.